0: Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations, and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor-in-Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Good morning, good afternoon,
1: good evening, listeners, wherever you are in the world. I am so excited to introduce Dr. Mark Tyndall. He is an epidemiologist, a physician, and a public health expert who has dedicated his career to studying HIV, poverty, and drug use in multiple places around the world, starting with Nairobi and now in Vancouver. He's an early advocate for harm reduction programs was at the forefront of North America's first legally sanctioned supervised injection facility in sight, and he is currently a professor at the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia and a citizen of the world at large. Thank you so much for coming on today.
2: Oh, thanks for asking me.
1: So I believe I met you, was it in Saskatchewan, at the Canadian Association for HIV Research Conference?
2: I was there. Yeah, probably.
1: I think we were at a dinner then, but I I know of your work and I've seen you Mm. talk a lot at conferences, so it's good to be having this conversation with you. Mm. And I know you're ready for this question because you've listened to some podcasts. So if I was (laughs) in an elevator with you physically distancing and asked you what your work is all about, what would you say?
2: So I did think about that. It's still a hard question. I am i would describe myself now as an advocate slash activist for human rights, especially people who use drugs, but, you know, people just in rougher situations. So my background is an academic and a public health leader. But now I think I've transitioned into my advocacy role.
1: That's awesome. I can't wait to hear more about it. And I'm sure you know what I'm going to ask you next. You're in Vancouver, right?
2: That's right. Yeah.
1: I love Vancouver. I was supposed to be there in in May, but COVID got in the way, but I might be coming next May, depending on COVID. (laughs) So if I'm going to show up in Vancouver at your house with my time machine, lots of physically distancing spaces, and say, bring me back to the time and place where you thought, oh, I want to be this advocate, activist, researcher, looking at these issues, because it seems like you have a lot of work on harm reduction, but also HIV poverty. So where did this journey begin? Take me in the time machine.
2: Well, I I think when I was quite young, before I even got into medical school, I was interested in, uh, developing countries, basically, and I had an opportunity to travel with a couple of medical teams in uh, high school and undergrad. But my medical training took me to Nairobi, Kenya for about four years in the very early days of HIV. And uh, it became quite clear to me that HIV wasn't really a viral infection as much as a a social problem that people were facing, Mm. and a condition of poverty and inequality. And I met uh, Jonathan Mann, who at th- that time had just uh, left the WHO and gone to Harvard to start a school of uh, health and human rights. And so I went there and did my doctoral degree and just learned a lot working with people there and tried to make my focus of my international work in HIV more to do with with human rights issues and taking a human rights lens to things. And I think that's really been my trajectory ever since, whether it's Uh, working with with gay men in HIV, or people using drugs in HIV, or sex workers in HIV, the, the, you know, the areas that I've focused in for my academic career have really uh, been heavily influenced by my time in Kenya and my thinking about health as a human right.
1: That's amazing. So on the time machine, I get to go to Nairobi, where I have actually never been, even though I'm working in Uganda. Mm. Then we get to go to Boston. which is awesome. And then we ended up in Vancouver. So yeah, Jonathan Mann's work was so inspiring. And I've read a lot of his work. So that's really amazing. You've been on this journey for decades now.
2: Yeah, a long time. So I've I've (laughs) kind of seen all the, you know, the um, different areas of HIV. So when I was in medical school, I My first clinic was uh, working with hemophiliacs with a doctor there named Erwin Walker. That would have been 1983. And probably over 200 hemophiliacs died in the next few years. So uh, there's no treatment and um, just people, you know, who just were coming in for their regular uh, bloods. Um, blood products uh, all of a sudden came down with AIDS and died and then uh, I saw the first people in Canada some of the first with with HIV in, in Canada when I was doing my medical work in uh, McMaster and then I got to see what happened in developing countries in in Kenya and then and then came to be British Columbia in 1999 and got involved with the people who are using drugs and HIV prevention there
1: I love how holistic and, you know, your journey has been so interesting and comprehensive. So I know you know a lot about stigma experienced by many different populations. So if somebody was to ask you, it's 2020, what's the big deal? Why should we care about stigma? What does it have to do with human rights or HIV? What's your thinking today around what is the urgency or the importance of addressing stigma?
2: well st- stigma i think is just the the new phrase you used it in your podcast title um but it's really that just describing human rights abuses of people and not uh mm-hmm. you know not treating people as they should be or, or not giving them the opportunities that they need and to just set up you know structural uh, structural situations where people can't succeed <laughs> and um That's basically what we've done over and over again. And my work right now with overdose uh, crisis in in Canada and British um, Columbia—it comes down to that. We just—we just don't care. How could we? You know, in British Columbia, I just watch, you know, six or 7,000 people die of overdose and essentially wow. do nothing. <laughs> like we're not, there's really no structural changes. We, it's all kind of little bit here, a little bit there, and naloxone program here and a supervised injection site there. But we really haven't done anything significant to change the trajectory of people using drugs. And still, the basic message is these drugs are bad, don't use them. And if you do, it's your, your fault. And so that's, uh, you know, that's the definition to me of stigma and, uh, and discrimination and uh, really blaming the uh, people that are victimized and making them pay the price, which is often their lives.
1: Wow, that's so powerful. Could you maybe walk us through an example of a person, you know, we're talking right now about the overdose uh, epidemic right now. Could you maybe walk us through, a fictional person, what stigma might look like in their day-to-day life, and and maybe, you know, we could understand the power stigma has to prevent people from getting the support that they need to live a good life?
2: Well, how else can you explain how we haven't done anything unless it's stigma? I mean, that's the simple explanation to kind of capture our whole response, which has been... Uh, so poor and we know basically the you know the war on drugs and criminalizing people who who are addicted is uh, just such a, a terrible thing for society and for the people impacted and so i think that it really encapsulated everything but what i've been working on very recently is this idea of a safe supply for people mm. and uh that was not really part of the harm reduction toolbox until two or three years ago. And having just worked and seen people in uh, coming into the uh, overdose prevention sites and supervised injection sites with poison drugs and the own brain damage is uh, seems to be pretty ridiculous response. We've refused to uh, allow them to have it. And actually, we've in the last few years have made it more difficult for people to get safer drugs by cutting back on our prescriptions. So I think the the policies that we've developed from the medical side have actually contributed quite substantially to the deaths that we're seeing right now and giving people really no options, but to buy tainted poison drugs. So my, you know, I think that's a great example of why would we not want to give people a drug supply that won't kill them. And to me, that's a just an obvious question. And, uh, for some reason, uh, people are not very supportive of that idea by and large.
1: I'm so glad you shared that. I wanna ask you two Mm -hmm. questions. The first question is, could you explain to the listeners what is the safe supply mean and what might that look like?
2: Yeah, well, it's uh, it's it's evolving. Basically, that should be our first uh, attempt to reach people. Um, we use the term in harm reduction, you know, uh, meet people where they are. Well, where they are right now is buying poison drugs. And so we have to accept the fact that they're using these drugs and to offer them an alternative. So... And then if, you know, if people are are really concerned with, you know, health status and recovery programs and that, that that can come later. But right now, people just aren't getting that opportunity, so I'm thinking that the only way to really seriously engage people meet people where they are is is give give them a safer supply of drugs my the program i'm working on right now is called mysafe it's an automated machine a biometric machine that people can get their drugs out of we have three machines now in Vancouver but it's very been a very tough slog it's not funded yet and uh, governments um, are really afraid of that of the technology they don't want to headline, um, you know, that, you know, the, the state is giving out drugs in a vending machine and they're very concerned about the technology, but it's really a safe way and a very low barrier way for people to get a hydromorphone that uh, can be a substitute for their uh, opioid use. It's not for everybody, but for a lot of people that we have on it, it's been uh, life changing. And then, you know, really it's, it's two, two focuses. One, they're not going to overdose on it because they know uh, people know what they're getting. And the second is it really cuts into the hustle where uh you can get up in the morning feeling drug sick and just go get the drugs rather than having to scheme and plan how you're going to possibly get money to get to get these drugs and uh to me it's it's just common sense like why would we think that you know even setting up supervised injection sites which i'm totally behind i think people need a safer place to go to meet somebody that can uh you know, support and help them. But, um, by the time you get to the supervised site with the pocket full of dope, 80% of your problems are over. Like you've already gone to quite lengthy extent to get these drugs in your pocket. And, uh, and then just to use them and turn around and an hour later, you have to do it all over again. And we've mm. created this, uh, this structure for people that's uh, impossible for them to ever get out of. And uh, it's really, to me, you know, we just don't care. Like it's, uh, it's stigma just overrides all our lack of response, all our lack of accountability. Um, nobody's really responsible for this because we blame the people that are uh, most impacted themselves. And if there's, you know, 50 overdose deaths today or 100 overdose deaths today, nobody's really that that concerned about it.
1: I want to get more into this vending machine. I think it's so cool. And I did notice I've been reading a little bit about you doing that. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, Before we get there, because I know the listeners are from varied spaces in in the world and in society. So maybe you could just just define what is a tainted or a poisoned drug supply. So this is when people think they're buying an opioid and it's got something else in it and that could cause them to become sick or to overdose? Is that, cause I, I know not oh. everybody is, is an expert in this topic that might be listening in.
2: Well, we've seen it unfold over real time. So, you know, I've, I've watched people and followed people who use drugs for tw- over 20 years, 25 years. Um, And they still had the same structural issues and structural violence and the the criminalization and the terrible situation we've set up for people. But starting about 2015, more people were overdosing. And when drugs were checked, they had fentanyl in them. And so Mm Initially, it was the switch over from heroin to fentanyl was a surprise to people. Um, They didn't realize this was happening, but very quickly people couldn't get heroin anymore and everybody knew it was fentanyl. So there's not a there's not a surprise in a place like Vancouver that people are buying fentanyl. Um, Mm -hmm. But the, what surprises people is just the lack of quality control and the lack of, and the um, just in, you know, very uneven potency. So we have a batch come onto the street and uh, it's not strong enough and everybody's wants more. And then the next day you get a batch that's super potent and everybody's dropping. So it's really, um, just really a quality control issue fentanyl itself is a adequate drug for people and there's people that prefer it over heroin but um when you have uh it controlled by you know labs that are you know in somebody's basement with a blow dryer and a a, you know and a blender i mean it's not going to be very good quality or consistent quality so we really have to take it out of the hands of people that are making this stuff up in their basements and uh give people uh, a quality product. But it's not a surprise anymore. People mm-hmm. do get surprised if they find fentanyl mixed with their cocaine or their crystal meth. That occasionally happens. But again, it's all to do with prohibition and driving producers to have a more concentrated product on the street and it's killing people.
1: Thank you for, for that um, information. And I so I want to say Okay, so you have this vending machine project, which I think is so original and innovative and important, and you've you outlined the two benefits. One of them is that people will be getting a, a supply that's safe, and second, that people will have more space in their life to realize other things rather than just trying to find the resources to access this product. So why is there um, backlash? What is the root of people, you said, not wholeheartedly embracing this concept? Is it that they feel like people shouldn't be using drugs or because they're judging that kind of drug? Because I've seen some of your tweets where where you refer to the fact that some drugs are stigmatized and some drugs are not. So is it that type? Is it the drug itself? People are like, oh, opioids are bad, in quotes. So, or is it people or is it addiction that's stigmatized? How do you, how do you um, understand all of those layers that are preventing people from supporting this concept.
2: Yeah, there's quite a lot of layers. I mean, for people who haven't haven't seen this, um, it's not really a vending machine as such. It's a big, it's an 800 pound square steel box with a little screen on the front of it. So it's a very secure place for people to store their drugs. Basically, everybody that can get access to it is uh, screened and followed and they they have their own prescription. So it's not, you know, it's not just people can walk up and get it. Although, in this situation, when everybody's dropping dead, I think that would be fine with me. But um, mm-hmm. it, it is still you know, quite secure, follows regulations of pharmacy and all that uh, thing. But um, I think there's layers, as you say. One is the backlash of harm reduction. Why would we possibly give people drugs when this is what's killing them? And my argument is it's not the drugs that are killing them. It's the system. It's the structure that's killing them. It's, this, it's prohibition that's driven people to use these crazy uh, street drugs uh, that they don't know what they're taking. So that's the first layer. The second layer is, well, if you're giving people a safe supply of drugs, we really need to wrap them up in serve. Like we need to watch them. So there's some um, Mm -hmm. fledgling supervised uh, program or um, safe supply programs are witness. So like the Crosstown. So you come three times a day, you can inject heroin or hydromorphone, under our supervision surrounded by social workers and health workers who are going to help you through this and so that's the next layer that if we're going to give people drugs then they need to have a complete comprehensive care service and then and i'm saying well that's not working for most people there's thousands of people out there who are disconnected they're not going to come in three times a day and have some health care worker watch them use their drugs so we need to allow people some autonomy. They, they can't be treated like babies. They know how to use the drugs. They're the experts on how they use their drugs. And we uh, the first step is just to allow them to get a safer supply. And I found, you know, with the pilot study we've done, there's people who've actually stopped using drugs. There's people that have got a job. There's people that have now got housing. So it's really cutting into the hustle that's really uh, been revolutionary for people and not so much Surrounding them with all these social services. I mean, our methadone programs are somewhat ridiculous. When we take people who are trying to stop using uh, street drugs, put them on methadone, and tell them that we don't trust them at all, you have to go in every morning, stand in front of a pharmacist, and they watch you drink your liquid. And uh, wow, that's just giving people the idea that we don't trust you. We think you're a criminal. You're forever, you know, dangerous to society, and we need to. Uh, totally control you. And so we need to start thinking about this much differently that uh, this is people's lives. They need some autonomy. We need to uh, break down these structural barriers and make things easier for them. Not put in all these rules and and requirements for people. You know, and there's a lot of physicians who are not comfortable with with prescribing these medications and but do feel totally comfortable with prescribing methadone knowing that people are uh, going every day to a pharmacist. Um and, I, I, and they can show me 50 people that are, they're following on their program that are doing excellent, that have done really well. But just look out the clinic window and there's another 200 people who aren't doing well because they're not, we've created structures and plans for them that are not conducive to what they want to do. And so they, we don't have any responsibility for them. Either you come and obey my rules, and that's the kind of top-down approach to all our medical care. This is, mm-hmm. a, this is my appointment. You come here, you sit here, you wait for half an hour. If I get, if I'm good enough to see you, then you can come in. Here's my rules, and uh, if you don't follow up with my rules, then I can't really see you anymore. So that's kind of, you know, that's that. It's not quite as simple as that, but for a lot of people trying to get into the medical system we've set up rules that they can't follow, basically.
1: I think that's such a a perfect example of stigma that people have to experience every day. It's just not being trusted to take their own prescription. Imagine if that was for a migraine medication or something, and we're going to give you the prescription. We don't trust that you'll take it at your place of residence, wherever that might be. You have to come and I have to watch you. That seems very different than how we treat other prescriptions you know even totally different. even and hiv meds you know here's your prescription for yeah. the month or the two months or three months or whatever it is yeah. and we we trust that you are a person that's capable of taking care of yourself
2: yeah and this isn't going to change by incremental and uh, you know people who uh Are critical of the healthcare system. It's not so much that that the physicians or the nurses or the workers there are uh, trying to stigmatize people, but they're working in a system that's built on uh, stigma and discrimination. (laughs) That this is our this is the rules that we've set up mostly for our benefit. If you can follow our rules, we can be really nice to you and we can really help you. But if you don't follow our rules, uh, then we can't really do much about it. Not because we're mean and, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to be hard on you, but this is a system that we've created. And so the system itself is stigmatizing and discriminating. And you can't really blame the individuals within that system, but they can't really, their their hands are tied. And um, I was the head of the BC Centre for Disease Control. So I had you know, an inside view of how government works and how the healthcare system works. And it's set up not to change. It's not, it's, it's not there for innovation. It's there for the status quo for the most part, because any change is difficult for somebody. And uh, politically, nobody's willing to really take those chances. So it's, uh, I've kind of removed myself from that side and decided that I'd instead of fighting from the inside out, I try to fight from the outside in. I don't know if I'll be any more successful, but it's certainly more fun.
1: <laughs> Which is really what, you know, <laughs> we were hoping that our work is yeah. also bringing mm-hmm. us some, some joy and fun. And, and I just also mm-hmm. appreciate you, your work. And I've, I've seen some of your publications looking at um, structural violence and how how we really had to start thinking about who has power in the system and who doesn't. And if we're willing to give away more power to people to take care of themselves, or if we are always going to be this sort of paternalistic figure, you know, it's super interesting. And I'm really happy that you're doing this work.
2: You know i've had a chance to think about this i left the BC CDC almost two years ago and uh even you know whether you're in academia trying to do uh you know do research you're still stuck in a very uh, top-down paternalistic model there's certain rules you have to play by and if you turn your research into some sort of advocacy for policy change, you really risk your academic credentials and your ability to move up that ladder. As an academic, you're supposed to approach your question with really no bias, that that you're trying to find out the truth here. And when you find out the truth, usually you move on to another question and try and find more truth. But we have a very difficult time. And HIV is a great example overall of really everybody in it Studying it knows it's not much to do with the virus. It's all about structural violence and discrimination and the way we put people in it. But many people in academic academia, it's very risky to to go outside of your bubble of uh, hypothesis generation and and writing your next paper and how that ever gets translated into anything useful for people is uh, is the real challenge and that's what my, you know I've come to uh, my conclusion at this stage of my career that I don't really want to write any more grants I, I don't there's no more questions that I need to answer right now there's uh, um most a lot of the questions have been answered it's just a matter of how we can implement some of the things we've learned to really make changes and so I think any person who's paid their dues in academia, they found answers and they they have some responsibility to act on them and not just go on to their next question and, and count how many publications they have on their CV.
1: I totally agree. I feel like coming from a social work perspective, we're a little bit, supposed to be a little bit more into social justice, but I think there's a lot to balance when you're trying to create social change it's not an easy effort at all so i'm watching and being inspired by your work
2: <laughs> i use fun in a very uh specific way it's it's not it's very challenging and it can become quite discouraging there's a lot of people that in my cohort or people that i know who have been at this for quite some time around drug policy and rights for people and it's uh, it can be it can wear you down after a while because uh it is not an easy system to break and it's much easier to uh you know, write a grant and write a paper. And uh, it's much harder to uh, advocate and try and implement and try to get things happening for people. And I still get quite a bit of my satisfaction from day to day uh, feeling that my um, audience is people who are impacted. In this case, people are using drugs. And I really don't care that much about my academic colleagues as far as, you know, I want to get along with people and things. But the people that I care about are the letters that I get from a actual a person who's really thankful that I, you know, intervened. And uh, that's far more satisfying to me than, uh, than you know, getting a, a getting a note from an editor that I got a publication coming like it. So. Yeah, I mean, it's taken time. I mean, I've done, I've checked all those boxes off. I've, I've been through all that, but I just really want to encourage people not to to look at their own structural limitations and the, what they're under as far as uh, trying to do this research and work in this area that there's a lot of walls that need to be broken down there too. And the system we have right now is, uh, is not particularly effective for uh, instituting change.
1: Thank you. And that actually leads perfectly into this last question on stigma, which is what do you want the listeners to do about it? How can they be part of that? So you just mentioned, think about the walls around you that need to be broken down, maybe to reduce that power imbalance or reduce the barriers for you creating or affecting social change. What what else can you think about? Because we have all different listeners. We have people in all different <laughs> some people walking their dogs some people working in a coffee shops some people maybe are professors what can the listener do
2: yeah that's a that's a great question <laughs> i mean i i think that you know there's so many things that people can do individually that will make a difference because i think part of the discouragement of people when they see you know oh the overdose crisis is a good example where i really don't see that much changing because there's not the political will to give people a safe supply of drugs or decriminalize drug use, the obvious thing we should be doing. And so I think people need to really be aware of the structural challenges that are out there and start breaking down those walls, be it a political movement or activism. Medical people and researchers are quite disconnected. So when I, I attend you know, rallies and protests and things now, that's where I spend quite a bit of my time. And often I'm the only doctor there, or the only person mm-hmm. from a, the uh, the government, or the, like, and I just wonder, like, where, where is the, where are people who, who feel that it's way better spending their time in their office, or in their university, um, than, you know, getting out there and showing support for people, and really pushing hard for change, and it takes, um, you know, you can um, really, get challenged with your credibility when you do that but i really think people need to stand up stand up and uh and really fight for what's right. And there's so many people with, you know, great ideas and write great things and um, are, you know, really good influencers, but I don't think there's enough of that. And it's just saying enough is enough. You know, why, Mm -hmm. why are we letting all these people die? Why would you put somebody who's addicted to heroin in jail? Like, like things that make absolutely no sense and are bad for the people, but bad for society. And uh, we really need to have people, you know, think about that and, and stand up and, and, you know, get out of their chairs and, uh, and agitate.
1: That's, that's <laughs> awesome. I remember I when I was in Vancouver 2019 in February, it was Valentine's day and there was a March for missing and murdered indigenous women. And it was in the lower East side. And it was so amazing. There was hundreds. I don't even know. Maybe I don't know how many hundreds of people, mm. but it was, Really powerful to see that and to be part of that movement. So, you know, I feel like that's a way to show solidarity and then maybe also to, to keep our own fires burning if we're feeling alone or burnt out as well.
2: Yeah, why else would you do this work, you know, if you weren't able to do that? But it really gets down to uh, really challenging the structures that we also work in. So, um, you know, advocating for change to governments and advocating to change to cities and communities, I think, is really important. But also advocating for change with our in our own environments, no matter what we do. And it can be very restrictive. As I say, I had the opportunity to work in the BCCDC with great people and uh, great things were happening there, but we really had our hands tied for the most part and the communication had to go through certain channels. And we know that governments are not there to actually lead change there. They will react to uh, what you know, what they think the public wants or what will get them the most votes. And it's up to us to kind of push the agenda.
1: Thank you so much. I feel so inspired now. Before we go, though, I want the listeners to learn more about the real you beyond work and advocacy. So we have some wild card questions. Are you up for it?
2: I am so up for it.
1: (laughs) All right. I'm going to shake it up because I know you've been listening to the podcast. So the first one, what is a karaoke song that you would sing in a bar?
2: Oh, that really takes me back. Uh, wow. Uh, <laughs> I you could go to bars. Yes. Yes. I guess I don't like Mondays by the Boomtown Rats. <laughs>
1: ah, awesome. i've only ever asked this question on one
2: podcast and the
1: person couldn't think of an answer so i'm impressed i'm super impressed that's great now i want to go listen to that song (laughs) second question is are you watching anything on netflix or anything on tv or anything you're like really into
2: I mean, I thought with this COVID thing, I'd have more time for that, and it hasn't happened very much. Uh, my <laughs> partner is not really into sitting down and watching shows, she find, she'd rather play board games, so we do a lot of that instead. But I secretly, on the weekend, uh, was catching up on Better Call Saul, so uh, that's, that's the prequel to Breaking Bad.
1: Oh, I haven't ever seen that, okay. is it good?
2: Amazing. Yeah. Well, better. Yeah. Breaking bad was uh, the one show that I, you know, watch from week to week. Didn't want to, didn't want to delay watching and uh, Better Call Saul is, uh, is really great also.
1: Uh, I'm like half just asking all these questions so I can get next inspirations, but I want to know what board games you're playing.
2: Oh, I also have a seven-year-old. So uh, (laughs) that shapes,
1: that shapes the board game. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah sushi go and uno and things but um we like playing hives which is a, a little uh disc game where you create uh you're trying to protect your bee it's it's like chess uh-huh. almost so uh-huh. i highly recommend hives to people and um what did we play on the weekend my son likes to play monopoly and i have a, i love monopoly
1: s- i can't find I'm- anyone to play monopoly with me because it's so long <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I, ha- I have another son who lives in Hawaii, and so we can play uh, Monopoly uh, the three of us uh, with with the iPad set up. So he has his own dice, and so we do uh, international Monopoly with my with my two sons. So- are you
1: are you using the actual board game, or are you doing it online?
2: No, we use the actual board game, and he oh. just with FaceTime, and so he can see his his moves, and we just move his man.
1: That's so cool. Um, <laughs> we're thinking about getting Dogopoly. It's the dog version of Monopoly.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll let yeah. you know
1: that happens. I'm also a big Balderdash um, fan.
2: I love Balderdash, but um, I'm too cynical and cutting, and so it's not. People don't like playing with me.
1: <laughs> too competitive it always, with it.
2: <laughs> yeah, it all it always turns out badly, and uh, people think that I'm. Uh, I'm really uh, grumpy, grumbly, and stuff. So, uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> so you're like I better at monopoly. Okay. So the last question I have is any kind of words of advice or wisdom that you want to share with the listeners?
2: Oh, uh, don't go over jumps on your mountain bike. I <laughs> think that's a, so. I. I, I, my my passion was mountain biking, and I did a lot of that. And I had a bad crash on uh, on in July, so I'm kind of laid up now. But um, yeah, so that would be my advice.
1: So don't go over <laughs> jumps. So you were going over a jump, like a built jump.
2: Uh, yeah, I usually don't. I mean, that's not my thing. I'm on the trails. But um, anyways, I I hurt myself mountain biking, oh. so uh, now I'm back to yoga. <laughs>
1: What did you love about mountain biking? Because you're going to get back on there.
2: Mountain biking is kind of a Zen experience for me. So um, there's nothing that um, I have to focus on uh, like your life depends on it. So uh, going down trails or up trails, uh, dodging you know, all kinds of uh, obstacles. Uh, you're so into it, uh, into the moment that I don't have time to think about anything else. And after I come out of an hour and a half on the trails, I'm uh, totally refreshed and zen and invigorated unless I hurt myself. And then I'm wondering what the hell I'm doing. But <laughs> I, I, feel,
1: I feel the same way about riding a motorcycle because you have to be so present. So you like, have to be, you're present about the road with the potholes, the flies, or the wind and the cars. So in that way, it's almost zen because you can't, like, you know, when you're driving a car, you can be thinking about all the things you have to do, but you know, similar probably to the mountain bike, you could crash into something if you're not like focused. So maybe yeah. you could consider a motorcycle just saying.
2: Yeah, no, I think you, everybody needs to find their level of risk. And that's the way you uh, you develop as a person, I think. So uh, not to be silly, but uh, to try and find activities that uh, you, it drives you to the edge. your comfortable edge. Totally. Yeah.
1: I like that <laughs> advice. Everybody find your edge.
0: Yeah, it's true.
1: And yeah. your zen, too. Thank you so much. I have loved having you on the show. And I'm so grateful you took the time. Thank you.
2: Oh, thanks, Garvin. I enjoyed talking to you.
0: Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's talk about stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world.